Hello, and welcome to the Cocktails and Conversation podcast. I'm Dana Marie Rockmore, the founder of the Dinner Party Project and co-founder of The Welcome House. I'll be inviting intriguing guests over to my home to chat about some of my favorite things, cocktails, story, the Enneagram, and rest. So as you may know, or may not know at all, cocktails are kind of my thing. At the end of a long day, or any day really, crafting a drink, whether it's simple or more complex, I really look forward to a delicious cocktail. Plus it makes all conversations better. Tito's Handmade Vodka is always a go-to for me. It's the perfect thing to have on hand to make just about any cocktail. That is what I love about Tito's. It's so versatile. Anything from a Moscow mule to an elderflower martini to a white Russian. Plus, Tito's Handmade Vodka has won a million awards, but for real. It's been distilled six times and won the SF World Spirit Championship. So the next time you are looking for an incredibly drinkable cocktail, pick up some Tito's Handmade Vodka. Plus, you should head over to titosvodka.com to read up more about their story and pick up some delightful recipes. Hello, friends. Thank you once again for listening to this podcast. Um, It has been such a great source of joy for me, especially during these times of not really being able to be out and connect and chat and share stories as much. So thank you so much for listening in. Before we get started, we are doing a happy hour next Tuesday, which is the 29th of September here in my home, outside of my home. And we're just going to have a drink and a couple bites and just be together. So if you would like more info, just send us a message or it's on our website. Um, we're doing safe and social happy hours. So if you could join us, that'd be so great. We still have a few spots left and it's just nice to be together during these times. We have an amazing cocktail uh, today. It is the, the second to last day officially of summer at time of recording this. So it has been, uh, I mean, it just obviously still feels like summer and it will still feel like summer for another, you know, uh, three months or so, but it is officially going to be the last day of summer. So I found a recipe called Violet Squeeze, and uh, if you know anything about me, I do love creme de violette. It's just very refreshing and also a classic, and it's kind of perfumey. I know it's not for everyone, but it looks beautiful, and it is so beautiful to drink. So I hope that you will enjoy Um, but you are going to find a cocktail shaker and to that cocktail shaker, you add, uh, 0.75 ounces of fresh squeezed lemon juice, uh, 0.75 ounces of Tito's handmade vodka, uh, one and a half ounces. I was about to say three ounces, Lord, one and a half ounces of the creme de violette, uh, half an ounce of simple syrup. And they're going to shake all that up with ice, um, real good. And then I served it in a Collins glass filled with ice and then filled it with tonic water, but you also can fill it with club soda. So whatever is your, of your choice. And if you want to garnish it with a lemon slice or a lemon wheel or a lemon peel, whatever, um, lemony, uh, moment that you want is up to you, but 
It is a highly recommended drink. So hope you'll enjoy that is what we drank in this episode. And I got to sit with my friend, Bonnie Barton Lewis, who I've known for 10 plus years and has stories upon stories. I mean, literally we could have talked for forever, but this is a long one and a good one. And there's just so much to know and to learn. And we all have lived such fascinating lives and Bonnie is no exception. So I really hope that you will enjoy this episode. Hey, Bonnie. Hi, Dana. Welcome to the Cocktails and Conversation podcast. I'm excited uh, to be here. Thank same. you. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. <gasps> I'm excited I about wish this. We, we are still in, in the moments of um, social distancing, which is pretty nuts, being six months in it to is. this thing. So I wish we could be right next to each other, but we will enjoy this cocktail that we've made to do some day drinking. And how about a virtual no. toast? Mm. <laughs> a virtual toast. Salud. Salud. Oh, this mm. is... Dana, this mm-hmm. is delicious. Good. So it's funny, at the oh. time of this recording, I think today wow. is... Mm, tomorrow is the last day of summer. Oh, Although it will technically still be center of summer for three more months here in central Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who are we joking? Yeah. But this feels, it's called, um, I think like a, a violet crush or something. Yum. Yeah. I'm trying to remember a violet something, but it is Tito's creme de violet, which I love personally, fresh squeezed lemon juice homemade simple syrup and then some tonic water to top it off or you can use club soda people have their own preferences whichever they like but it's got this gorgeous lavender color yeah violet if you will yeah um with a violet flavor which is i don't know like once i discovered it as something that i want to incorporate in so many things it's so very perfumey. It's very perfumey, right? Yeah, so I understand it's not for everyone, and some people have a an inversion to that, you know, like rose yeah. water and things of that nature. But I'm usually like, bring it on. Yeah, yeah. I don't have that aversion. So good. I don't have that. So aversion. speaking of not having an aversion, the first okay. thing that we talk about is cocktails, <laughs> which you know, and. What is um, a go-to cocktail for Bonnie? Like, what would be something that is, like, either when you go out, you just know that you order it, it's something that you're going to love all the time, or are there any drinks that you make at home? As, like, a very simple just treat to yourself. Like, where would, what is a, like, a Bonnie Barton, like, go-to drink? Um, uh, well, I could give you a Bonnie Barton go-to drink. That would have been, um... For my time in Austin, Texas, and New York City. Okay. And then I could give you a Bonnie Lewis go-to drink. Okay. That would be. <laughs> okay. Uh, so. Bonnie Barton Lewis. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So a Bonnie Barton go-to drink would be. Uh, basically, I'm going to tell you when I was in my 20s and my 30s, and you know, I did my 20s in Austin, my 30s in New York City. Right. Um, it was definitely wine at home. So, yeah. 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 And I honestly, uh, I lived in this neighborhood called Greenpoint and around the corner was like, you know, a decent, but a very Polish liquor store, but they had a really good collection of French wine, all of which you could buy for like $10 or less. So 
a go-to Bonnie drink would be, you know, while getting ready to go out for the night, maybe a Cotron or a, you know, grabbing something. A, grabbing a bottle. Yeah. Yeah. A something. Um, now, uh, Bonnie Lewis yes. is the Orlando iteration of Bonnie. And, and the married, and yes. the current uh, married uh, yeah. to your man. Married mom moan. Yes. Um, my husband and I, we love to slow it down and toast a glass. So we've always got really nice glassware ready. We got some of the Yield Design Co., like the handmade oh. cocktail glasses, but we only have two. Okay. Because they're ours. Yeah. And Super then, special. Yeah. And then we've got our like walk to Azalea you know, the little azalea park by the water. We've yeah. got our yetis. Okay. So the glassware is really important. And I need to tell you the way this drink looks, this drink is delicious that you made me, but the way it looks pleases me just as much. It's really beautiful with the lemon wheel and the, ugh. anyway, so at our house, we make amazing margaritas. Okay. Uh, to yes. your point, I too make my own simple syrup. Okay. Um, and it's just whatever tequila. And you know how easy it is. It is so easy. Yeah, stupid. Um, we also, if Brian and I are going to like have a little cocktail that's more like date night at home. Yes. I make unbelievably good cosmopolitans. Oh. I do. I do. <laughs> Again, you come over, I will set it down six feet away and right. you can have, yeah, no, I, so I, I love that. I kind of love that cocktail hour ethos of married life where you just end one part of the day, <laughs> sit together carve share, out share a drink yes yeah. yeah it's like this moment and you're delineating between all the chaos and all the things happening in the world yep. right and then yep. you can share this moment share a drink with somebody yeah spouse or a friend or whoever and i'm finding too it's um i don't think in the beginning of this sort of kind of work at home time Brian works from home. I'm a hundred percent home now. Right. I used to travel for work. Right. Um, for us to have a thing. Yeah. Right. Oh, something to remember, Dane. I don't want to change subjects, but do you remember when you and I went together to the St. Regis? Oh, a hundred percent. That was amazing. Not my dime. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Food for free whenever. Oh, we could tell. That's another topic for later. Right. We have some good memories. Um, <laughs> cheers to that. Cheers to that. Amen. Da, da. But, um. Nicholas living his best life. And you and me. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you, Uncle Ralph Lauren. Um, but, uh, no, I, Yes. I find it's important because Brian's got a home office now in our new house and I'm sort of, um, I made an office in the laundry room. So during the day we're in mode, we're in very much, we're in work mode. Right. Um, and I'm finding that it's really important for me to make a physical marker mm-hmm. that transitions us to like nighttime mode. Right. And I find that if we can just, just even sit down for 30 minutes Mm -hmm. and rather than expect to be in each other's day all day, when we're in the tense work mode, that if we can kind of leave each other alone during the day and then come back together as, 
our, you know, our family selves as our couple selves. Um, I do find that real moments of connection. Yes. And I do find that having a little decadence together, sharing like a little, it has to be a beautiful cocktail. Right. You know, a little something nice is... And it's often margarita. It's often... We kind of flip back and forth. Margarita Cosmo. It's okay. definitely, you know... Um, so, yes, that's, that is... Those are the cocktails featured most yes. in the... Yes. So, in pre-COVID times, which okay. is six months ago, um, slash wherever, wherever we are, wherever you are in the, on the spectrum of the world right now, Yeah. what would be a place, um, maybe one or two places that you would often go to grab a cocktail, like a favorite oh. joint around town for a favorite drink? That is a fun question. Um, there's favorite and then there's what I do. So, um, so I think you could kind of merge favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Cause favorite is like where I'll go out of my way for. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but understanding, you know, I'm a working mom. So there's also what I do, which is just that, which is close to my house. Uh Accessible. Yeah. My friends can get there. So, uh, I have some of the moms from my son's school and I, we have a little happy hour tradition. Fair enough. Luke's patio. Oh, sure. Always. Yeah. Little, we get there. Yeah. Get there for the happy hour. Yeah. Yeah, Like food is so delicious. And their food is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. They changed the menu. So I'm grieving a few losses, Ah, but there are some new additions. I've not been there in quite a while, but, um, yeah, it's a good combo because they have that beautiful outside patio. Yeah. And great menu and great bar menu. Yeah. Yeah. Now favorite, if I'm going to go out of my way, and it's not that far out of my way, but if I want something special, if Brian and I want something special, we're going to go to Washburn Imports. Oh, the Imperial. Yeah. No, no, no. Washburn Imports uh, on Park Avenue. Sorry. They just opened the one on Morse. Right. That's a little bit more quiet and oh, tucked away. Yeah. Yeah. We love the Imperial. Is it still the, it's uh, called Washburn Imports, the Imperial. Maybe I don't know. Not. Okay. Right. But yes, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. So yes, the Imperial. Right. Also. But also the one on in Winter Lake Park Avenue. Yeah. Yeah. We like to go there. They also have a cute little outside. They have a cute little outside. Look. Yes. Yeah. I've yeah. been there for. Uh, it's been it's been a while, but yes. Okay. Okay. Those are good suggestions, and I feel like some good different offerings. Hmm. Yeah. Luke's and Washburn. So I wanted to. See spend a good amount of time because one, <laughs> one reason I'm very excited to have you on and um, I'm sure we could be here until tomorrow mm-hmm. however we're gonna you can carefully select some moments of the reality of our stories right like we don't yeah. get we don't get to choose where we land in the universe we don't get to choose our family of origin mm-hmm. we don't get to choose so many things in life yeah <laughs> I mean it feels right now in this moment we don't choose anything because there's so much that is out of our control, yeah. but there really is so much out of our control in life anyway. Yeah. Um, but I would love to know kind of where you were placed in the universe and oh. kind of like, what were those kind of formative years like for Bonnie as like growing up in your household? Like, are you an only child or do you have siblings? What was kind of the feeling of like Bonnie's like maybe first 10 years? Oh, 
And I know I've been listening. I, I, I listened to the dinner party project podcast. Cause I love, I love all the people you have on them and it's fun. It's also challenging for me cause I had a lot of trauma in my childhood. Sure. Um, so I'm toying with how transparent I'm going to be. <laughs> you should ask this at the end when I had more cocktail. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. My dad was great. Right. Um, you can share as little or as much as you like. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, honestly, I'm just going to go ahead and be honest. Uh, I had, I had both an amazing childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, uh, you know, a really, a really painful childhood, mm. really painful childhood. Sure. Um, so I was born in Northern California. Well, no, I wasn't born in Northern California, but from, you know, the age we moved to Northern California when I was in preschool. Okay. Um, so I have very vague memories of anything before that. I was a Navy brat. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, parents married at Annapolis under the, under the swords, very romantic. Okay. And like my dad was on, he was the commander of a ship, uh, oh. when I was born. So he got leave to come home and, right. you know, uh, uh, it was all these stories are really, um, kind of grand and epic. Um, I did a lot of traveling as a child, so I've been right. out of the country a number of times as a child. Um, but, uh, we settled down as a family in, um, the Bay area of San Francisco and, um, the town. Just that, real economical. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just, I know. <laughs> cost of living, very affordable, very accessible. Yeah. Back, back then, back then, probably more so now, not sure. at all, not at all. Um, but, uh, you know, lived in Northern California. I grew up on one of those streets where, every single house had a kid my age in it. So, um, something about me is I tend to really, really thrive when I live in like a little kind of a St. Almost fire posse of friends. Mm -hmm. I've had lots of moments in my life where I've just, you know, lived in a city, but had an extended family of friends. And I think that, I think that, um, I think that my, my love of living my life in a little group comes from my childhood where we all just mm-hmm. lived at each other's houses, you know, stranger things. Uh, yeah. Like nobody's doors right. were closed. You never slept in your own bed. You never ate dinner at your own house mm-hmm. unless somebody would, you know, so, so I had this really neat, um, neat experience. I, uh, connected with swimming at very young and, um, you guys listening can't see me, but, um, I think the most, the most outstanding thing about me is my height. Um, you know, I hit six feet tall. We at, are a yin and yang. Yes, we are. We are, we're a team, we're a team, but I hit six feet tall really young. And so they singled me out as a swimmer, um, mm-hmm. and really, really, really started training. So I was swimming by the time I was 10, I was definitely swimming year round two hours okay. a night. Um, so I had this bodies. I had gigantic shoulders and yeah. bright green hair, and I was six feet tall. Right. That yeah. long limb, long toned arms, and yeah, back in the day, I did, I did. Um, in in men, I oh. love swimmers' bodies. Yes, people are like, "What's your type?" I'm like, physically, yeah, like a swimmer's, uh, or like a surfer's, like that, that like long and lean and toned. 
Yes. Yes. Broad. Oh, anyway, continue on. I digress. Oh, I, um, you know, for the children, I'm not going to go there with you, but I <laughs> thoroughly agree. <laughs> and the beauty of swimming is your, your perspective of your teammates is so physical because your eyes are underwater and you're moving together like a band of horses. Right. Yeah. So, you know, like, so it's not that you're looking in each other's eyes. You are a moving physical kind of a unit. So yes, I grew up also loving the swimmer's bodies <laughs> and always just really admiring it. So anyway, but, um, but yeah, no, I was a lifelong swimmer. Um, and so when I think about the things that just, uh, kind of mark, I'm a one trick pony. I'm a very, um, focused person. Mm-hmm. Um, in a loose way, like the thing that I did for a hobby when I was nine, um, that I took like wildfire, which was sewing, Right. I have never stopped and I'm still doing it. And I'm building my fifth business off of the, uh, sort of like off of the concept of sewing in the world. But, um, so that was introduced pretty early. Yeah, it was introduced early, but I, I actually do want to, I do, you know, as a service to you guys listening, I, I made a commitment to myself recently that I was just going to be more transparent about my life. Cause it's just facts. It's not, it doesn't speak into who I am or who I'm not. Um, but, um, but you know, I, God did put me, uh, put me in a family that, um, my dad was living in Japan cause he was stationed there and my mom decided to stay home. Mm-hmm. And in the time that, um, that, uh, my dad was away, my mom, uh, she's now fully disabled with schizophrenia, um, started to, uh, just kind of in, in the beginning in small ways, lose her touch, lose her connection with reality. And, mm-hmm in much larger ways later lost her connection with reality. But, but so asking about my years zero through 10, do you have any siblings? Oh, I do. I'm the oldest. So I'm the big sister, but I act like the youngest and I always have. Um, (laughs) I have a, I have a younger brother who's like, who's both the most social extroverted person you've ever met. He's the most charming. He reminds me of Jim on the office. Very whimsical, very silly, Uh you know, like very lovable. Right. And, but it's kind of like butterfly wings on a, on a backbone of steel. Tim is the smartest person I've ever known. He's, he's an, he's a mechanical engineer and does a lot. So there's Tim. And then Beth is the baby and she's a mama of five. And that has always been her dream. Sure. Yeah. So, so we were a close family. Okay. And, um, pre sickness, my mom was an artist without a doubt, sculptor and painter, but mostly sculptor. And our life in Northern California was like a work of art. My mom had a minivan and she was not afraid to pile all the kids into it Mm -hmm. and go everywhere all the time. So my life on a weekend was anywhere from Santa Cruz to Napa to San Francisco. And she wasn't the one who would just take us and yell at us to behave. We were like, let run loose. She would drive down Lombard street, driving with her knees and her hands in the air, screaming like she was nuts. And when, and before she was sick, she was good nuts. Right. <laughs> and then, and then it went over, you know, it, the, it tipped and, but, but no, I mean, she created a magical 
she was, she created a magical childhood for us. So I lived kind of a mystical reality in a sense. Uh And, um, art was real as it is, but art was real in our home. Um, in Shelley's influence, you're never pushed to achieve the things that society wants you to achieve. Mm -hmm. You are always a dazzling creation of God. Nothing could be better than Shelley's kids. Like we were, you know, we were definitely raised to, we were raised with a cheerleader. Um, and anything we were interested in, she would grab onto, not just foster, but like literally we'd all marinate in it. So, so, um, so yeah, that was my childhood was full of hobbies and friends and adventures. And I lived in Northern California. I was a terrible student. I was an excellent swimmer. Right. And I picked up, did you swim, um, like in school? I did. Okay. I did. I was varsity all four years. Yeah. Yeah. So actually that leads into our next, um, question, which is kind of like, what was, who was, how was Bonnie in like middle school, high school? Oh, what was your driving force or yes. how did you show up in the world during those very formative years? That is a very fun question. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So elementary school, I was, um, I was honestly, I grew really big, really fast. And a lot of kids started picking on me and it got out of hand. So they actually moved me schools because the kids picking on me got out of hand. But then I went to my new school and it was like just a different reality. I went from being a bullied kid to being a really well-liked person with, you know, like easy access to friends. It was just a good fit. How how old were you in this transition? Fourth grade. So we're moving. Yeah. Very pivotal. Yeah. Yeah. So we're moving. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. It was like, uh, I got into junior high school and I think because of that bullied experience, I've always kind of maybe been a little bit more guarded and a little bit more shielded. Mm -hmm. So I found my way into, the oddball artsy kid circle. So I definitely like, I liked everybody, you know, junior high school is just a social experience with some books, right? It's, <laughs> I don't even know, but it was tough. I always liked myself. I just knew that I didn't quite work in the world, but I always had a deep core of, um, and I think it comes down to, I was good at swimming and I was good at sewing. So I had my places I could go. So I always felt very valid. Mm -hmm. And I think by nature, especially when I was young, I'm an introvert. So as long as I had my one or two best friends, it was kind of like all of that could just be atmosphere. And sometimes all of that was challenging atmosphere. And sometimes all of that was like amazing atmosphere. But I kind of feel like junior high school, I flew above it a little bit, if that makes sense. Um, high school, high school got different, you know, high school, high school, I stayed, I always gravitated towards the kids on the wrong side of the track, even though I think my nature is very conventional. And until I was in my twenties, I was not rebellious. Okay. Never, not at all. Um, but high, but still actually, um, I need to be honest in high school, I turned 16 and my dad, I was living with my dad at this point, you know, you can imagine things evolved and, and, Mm -hmm. uh, my dad took me. And so, um, 
Were you with your siblings? No. No. I went, Beth and Tim stayed. Yeah, that's a pretty big... It was a big deal. It was a big life change. So I was an only child living with a single dad and we're living two towns over from my mom. He settled very close to her so he could be close to his kids and um, let us make the choice. So that's why I made the choice first. Right. Um, But he was right there. And um, so age 16, I got a Camaro. It was my dream car. My dream, Dana, dream car. Turquoise leather interior, white steel body, old school body model, you know, with like the steel bumper. I first, like I had an... And we're talking like... Oh, yeah. 80s? I was born in 72. So this is 88. Yeah. Um, I was totally new wave, completely new wave. Okay. Lots of, lots of life spent in San Francisco and Berkeley. Lots of, you know, I was definitely alternative, Right. but I had this cherished uncle who was a like rocker who loved muscle cars. So because I worshiped him, I worshiped Camaros. <laughs> so, um, I cut a lot of high school and ah. because I was living with a single dad, he would miss the calls. So a lot of high school for me, but I wasn't a bad kid. I just didn't want to do school. Sure. So a lot of my high school was in the parking lot of the high school in my Camaro. Okay. Listening to a lot of Simon and Garfunkel. Why? As one does. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and it's 1988. Um, so... I don't, I had a boyfriend who was in college. Uh, he was like your classic California surfer, but he was also smart. Um, so again, I was in high school. I did a lot of swimming. I liked English and I liked art, but otherwise I wasn't terribly engaged. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't keep any yearbooks or go to any reunions or just, right. You kind of were biding your time until you could be free. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't feel rejected. But I just kind of, I just kind of felt like I didn't fit in the functionings Mm -hmm. of like, it all just kind of like, I kind of tended to look at all the social machinations from an odd distance Mm -hmm. and just go like, I don't really have a place here. I'm here, but I'm not really here. Yeah. So I'm just not going to (laughs) go. But you graduated they gave you a diploma? They did. Eventually? They did. They did. And uh, I did I did end up going to my dream college, and I graduated magna cum laude from the University of California at Davis after oh. two years of junior college. Okay. And studying in Europe. My first time was in England. Mm. And then my second time during my undergraduate, I studied in France, mm. and I loved college. I literally, right. yeah. I went to school every day, right. <laughs> graduated with a 3.96 GPA. Um, but I'm jumping ahead and it's your question turn. Well, <laughs> this is fair enough. But I mean, I think that that's, um, obviously the progression of just like, what was <sighs> like when you got freedom and yeah. then, or I mean, we're going to get to young adult, but like, (laughs) um, towards the Austin years, how was that? And then what was it like building on the things in Austin that you did? Yeah. Yeah. Those were all really fun times. Um, so you stayed in California slash traveling. I did. For college. I did. And then I loved, I just loved being in college. Honestly, I loved the information that I was supposed to engage with in my classes. Mm -hmm. Like by the time I was in my, you know, my, the second half of my undergraduate, 
um, I was reading books and critical theory, like novels and critical theory. I was comparative literature. So I was reading them in ancient Greek, French, and English. Mm -hmm. And that was thrilling to me. And while I know you think I am a three, I tested myself again and I landed again, equally at a two seven combo. Uh And so the way I approached college made me really, really validated the seven in me that it's all just a very pleasurable experience. So I thrive when I'm in a place where I can fully live in that joy of life. Right. Yeah. So college was a great place for me. I lived in a great little tiny town, Davis in Northern California and jumped over to France for a year. And where were you in France? Lyon, France, Uh, the center of Dana's world, which is food, (laughs) food and textiles. That was all it was (laughs) food and fabric. (laughs) That was beautiful. All things French are. Yeah often desirable. They are, they are. So it was, it was college was just this happy whir of knowledge and joy Mm -hmm. for me. Kind of coming into yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Finding Bonnie. Yeah. And it really prepared me well to be a fine dining food service waitress, which is what I did for about seven years after college. Yeah. Um, so anyway, no, I, I joke about it. I was like an undergraduate in literature is literature and languages going to set you up well to maybe wait, wait tables. tables. <laughs> <laughs> but you had the time of your life. I did. Just being soaking it all in, having the capacity to do kind of things on your own terms yeah, and then still being probably still engaged in sewing. Yeah. And swimming or? Uh, swimming is just there for me always, but uh-huh. it's never been a focus again. Right. However, it's just one of those places I return to. But something I loved about traveling abroad, and I think that this is um, something like like living abroad. Like you, you know this. You don't go for a week. You go for three months. Mm-hmm. You just. I liked. Appreciate yourself. Yeah. You, you can have a more intimate experience with where you are, but you also have the freedom when you live there. Like I was in Paris for a month in a language intensive and I, I bought myself a black wig because I liked having two different personalities I could just toy with. Okay. Yeah. And I'd go to school as Bonnie, the six, like really humble, six foot tall, like outdoorsy looking blonde girl. Uh-huh. And then at night I loved to go out to dinner with my black wig on and do cat eyes and, you know, like wear a sexy what? dress and just, I just liked, when can we get this one? <laughs> Dana, I'm yeah, 47. I'll show you pictures. <laughs> but, it was, but I think I loved like, I don't like costumes. I don't like Halloween. Mm-hmm. Don't hate me. I have no interest in cosplay. It's like, it just doesn't captivate me. Right. But I love an alter ego wardrobe expression. Right. Oh, I love, I love the possibilities of relationship that you can have by the simple change of sort of a, an environment in the textiles you wear. Right. Right. And people treat you differently. And it's just, it's just a fun experiment in the world. So as a young girl who had enough sense to realize her power in that I enjoyed it at age 19. I loved, but then you really dug into it. Mm-hmm. So tell us about I movie did. Boston. 
Um, well, I actually got into the college of my dreams to do a PhD. So I was in line to pipe off and do a PhD and I had a nervous breakdown, not a nervous breakdown. It's just everything in my gut said, don't. Mm. And I was dating a classical musician who was moving to Austin to do his PhD in music. And I was like, I'm going to defer this education. I'm going to defer this invitation and I'm going to go to Austin and think things over. Mm-hmm. So we cross country road trip, got to Austin, settled in relationship fell apart. But within two days I was utterly in love with Austin, Texas, just utterly in love. You moved and you were only in Austin for two days for two days before the relationship with the boy that I moved with. So you moved with and then him. immediately uh, it was just on arrival. I'm probably exaggerating. It was probably like a couple of months, but oh, it, okay. it feels like it feels like we got there. It feels like we got there and he got very focused on school and I got very focused on fun. Mm. And we didn't have a solid enough relationship really to be, you know, like moving anywhere anyway. Right. Um it just circumstances had it and I had an adventurous nomadic heart at that time. Um, that, Oh, but Dana, you would have loved it. Our house was one little one bedroom house in a cluster of little one bedroom houses on a little Austin street that looks like God shook up the little houses and like threw them like dice on a big plot of land that was all growing vegetables. And our neighbors were six guys who were a, who were a salsa band Oh my God. So I would go out at lunch and pick some tomatoes, pick some tomatoes, grab some basil out of the garden, and they would be practicing salsa music. Yeah. The six of them living in their one bedroom. Oh my gosh. So, so that was fun. So I'm, so I'm in Austin, Texas. I'm a fine dining waitress and I am, um, and I don't know what I'm going to do because I know I don't want to be a teacher. I know... I love information and I love to share information. I love to serve. I love it when I have something that can bring somebody to life that, uh, fills my soul much more deeply than my spirit of adventure makes me happy. Um, but I know it's not books. It's not words. Like that was the first half of my life was kind of underwater and in language. And I knew like the Lord kept telling me the next half of your life is not, in a book or underwater, the next half of your life is out there. So get ready and grow up and go. And so I was working at Jeffrey's restaurant, which is this great fine dining restaurant in an old house in Clarksville. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, you know, $3,000 bottles of wine and the ceiling is leaking because the house is from 1895. You know, it just, it was a wonderful environment. Right. And, um, did you ever go, sorry, this is totally off track. Do it. Did you ever go to Shake Knees? In Berkeley? Yeah. Uh, no, no, I didn't, but I have all of her cookbooks. I know. I wish I had, I know. Right. And it's just a a thought. Oh, you should go to, I will go to Chez Panisse with you when this COVID thing's over. Sure. That'd be a very good girls weekend. Oh, right. I'd love to. I've never been to. Oh, we would do San Francisco very well, Dana. (laughs) (laughs) For the reader, you need to know Dana and I have been friends for a long time. Um, 10 plus years. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of life together. A lot of life together. So we can do, we can do San Francisco post COVID. But, um, so I, um, 
in Austin, uh, I was, I, I found the rock and roll music scene. So for a girl who loves personal expression through costume mm-hmm. and loves to be very expressive, but also very disguised, mm-hmm. the rock and roll scene, like the little In indie, the like, yeah, the little indie music rock and roll scene. Right. Um, and I'm like 23 years old and making $700 a night that I come home with in cash in my bra from my restaurant. Right. right. It was a decent life. I had a lot of freedom. I had a lot of money and I was really really young living in this great city, discovering and music, Explo- yeah, yeah, exploding into music, right. stubbornly single, like very intentionally loving being single, right. kind of single. Um, nobody was going to tell me that the way to go was get married and stay in a house. <laughs> just like, <laughs> just, I had a very different concept of marriage than I have now. Now I look at marriage as such a freedom and a strength, but I'm also, you know, it's just, this is the season in the life that I've been open to marriage. I wasn't then. Right. Um, but anyway, Austin, Texas, go to a costume party because that's what rock and rollers do. You know, lots of dressing up. So it's uh, Havana in the Havana in the sixties. Okay. And there was some band that was playing live there that went on to be really, really, really big. I want to say it was like the white stripes or something like that back in the day when right. everybody would come through Austin and play house parties. Um, And it was fun because I lived across the street from one of Austin's biggest uh, punk icons who became a music recorder and all of the bands would stay at their house, the Kerr family's house, Tim and Beth Kerr. And I lived across the street. So I literally for six years went to brunch every weekend with some different traveling band. I knew that is so fun. It was fun. And I wound up making a lot of their clothes. I wound up making a lot of their clothes when I moved to New York city. So my passion, my whole life along with swimming was sewing. Right. Um, but I'm an out of the box human. So I've never really followed the simplicity patterns. I've always just liked to sculpt things to bodies and craft them myself. So I, anyway, I'm going to bounce this story. I jumped ahead with living across from the Kerrs in, um, gosh, did we live in Hyde Park? Very Northern tip of Hyde Park, Austin. And, uh, I'm waiting tables. I go to this party Havana in the sixties and I made for me and all my girlfriends satin dresses worthy of Cuban divas. Like, you know, just like all flowers and black and red and deep cut these. And a film producer saw me and my girlfriends and literally asked everyone at the party, like, who are those women and where did they get the dresses? Because it was very clear that it wasn't, we didn't go to the thrift store and pick those up. We were weren't weren't patching it together with some red lipstick. We were definitely like, I did costume research and and I love my girls and what else am I going to do? I work three days a week. So, you know, um, so somebody introduced me to him and I became a prop designer for blow the line productions in Austin, Texas. And then, so I'm getting more and more work. I'm getting more and more exposure. (sighs) Funny link, my hairdresser, Francoise, whose salon's name is Francoise, um, right in the heart of town, cut my hair into a Mia Farrow pixie haircut and dyed it black. So so six feet tall. There are so many photos that I need to, you need to see a lot of pictures. I know I, and I have them, but, um, but so she told me, I went in for a haircut and she said, I've got a surprise for you. And I said, I can't even imagine what it is. And she said, she opened 
the door to a whole shop. She said, I'm giving this to you for free because ever since you got that haircut, you've doubled my business. Cause everybody, I'm working fine dining. I'm seeing everybody in town. Everybody's, everybody's asking me, where'd you get your haircut? And then they actually go. So, um, so I open my first custom design shop. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to alter clothes yet. I knew how to sew. I mean, along with swimming, I'm an obsessive person, which is probably why I need pleasure and life so much because I get so deep into my craft. Yeah. When I was an athlete, I was a very committed athlete. I was, you know, state ranked in what I did. Um, and as a tailor, I am, I did deep diving into classic tailoring. So, um, so I opened this shop and I decided, I said, well, this is going to be the launching point for me to get to New York city. And I didn't even know this job existed, but I was like, I had seen it in the movie blow up that there was a tailor on set in a film production. It's this French movie. It's amazing. And it's, you, you need to watch it, Dana. Okay. <laughs> we can watch it together. I got time. Oh so. yeah. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And you make cocktails. Yes. Um, but, uh, but I wanted to be her. So I had the shop and I took it on myself. I was altering clothes for the community for next to nothing, but I would check out classic tailoring books to learn how. And anytime I had a real garment in shop, I'd go buy three similar garments at a thrift store, do it three times with a book in front of me. And then I would execute on someone's paid garment. So I did this for almost three years in the back room of a hair salon while at the same time making, basically I was known as the girl who could make anything. So every musician had a pair of custom made pants out of me, okay. I made rainbow pants with white leather clouds at the feet. I made leopard printed velvet pants for men. You know, this yeah. is, this is back in that era where it's it was like, like Smith, well, right? glam rock, like at the drive-in and the Mooney Suzuki, it was like these young kids were doing, you know, like stadium rock in small clubs. That right. was just like kind of that era. So there was a lot of nineties pants happening. Yes. yes. A lot of tight yes. pants. So, um, so I'm just doing that and I'm really getting good. I'm really getting good at tailoring and I'm getting like, I'm making debutante balls. I am making. You're still doing fine dining waitressing. I would love to Dana. Oh, not today. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, do you have a job? (laughs) I tell my husband all the time. I want to be a waitress. I loved when you're a fine dining food server, you're not a waitress. No, no, no. You're a guide on a sensual journey. Yeah. You are taking a human from their human state and leading them Mm -hmm. to a physically transcendent experience of themselves. Mm -hmm. It is such a fun job. Um, And you're kind of like a wizard because you're totally sober and you're just like (laughs) walking them along. Like, come with me. Yeah, I'll take care of you. Yeah, come with me. Right. Um, But I was saying, at that time, had you stepped out of serving? No, I had my shop that I did in the daytime. Okay. I worked at Jeffrey's three days a week. Okay. And New York happened in an interesting way. Um, I was about to buy a house. I was about to settle down, buy a little bungalow, you know, live in Austin and... I had, I also started a design line with a best friend. Her name is Melanie Beckett and she's in Los Angeles. Now, um, we started fragment of I, and we would create these little collections of clothes. And then we gathered, we founded a cohort. Austin had such a big design, uh, community, but there were all these 
it was totally disenfranchised. Whereas the music community obviously was South by Southwest and, you know, emos and all the clubs, mm-hmm. there was a cohesion there. So we decided we were going to make a collective. So we became the designers guild of Austin. Right. And we were 15 designers deep. We would do fashion season, spring and fall. We would take over abandoned warehouses. We would take over printing presses. We would do anything. We'd fill it with 500 people and we would all present these little two minute collections. So we also owned a, we also owned a boutique called Idol Boutique, painted it lime green. And we all, it was neat. It was a collective of designers selling their own goods and we all worked the shop. Right. So that was that. Um, and, um, I got an offer to move to DC that I don't really want to get into because I feel like a lot of time is happening on my past. And I'd really love to give you the opportunity to ask me about what part of my life I know you love the most. (laughs) (laughs) I had an opportunity to wait tables in DC and, um, and that was glorious in its own right. Um, and from there I launched to New York city. So Yeah. And here we are in New York City. So here we are in New York City. And I want to slow me down because I feel like I've gotten on a roll. And I want to let you uh, access something you're interested in. So (laughs) ask me some questions. Well, I think that that is why we're here is is the story, the progression Mm -hmm. of your story. And so all these things line up and they continue the arc of the story. But the fun part is also continuing your story, which is New York City. Yeah. I know there's loads of marvelous things that kind of awaited you during that time. Yeah. You were there for 10 years? I was there from a fun fact. I moved there on September 27th of 2001. One. I was in DC and I heard the plane go into the Pentagon. Right. I was living in the Watergate hotel because I was, that's where I was waiting tables was in the old Aquarell space. I moved over there with, um, president Bush jr. When he was elected, cause I was his favorite waitress at Jeffrey's and I had oh. sewn clothes for all of their friends. Like if you looked at their inauguration and I need oh, to out, wishes? yeah, I need to out myself. I am a yellow dog Democrat, right. but I'm a human being first and, um, you know, political second. I liked these human beings a lot. Um, and, uh, so you moved to DC on a request? Yes. I was moved there. Jeffrey's, my restaurant was, um, George Bush jr's, favorite restaurant when he was uh, governor in Texas. Uh-huh. And there were two star waiters, Bonnie in the bar and Johnny in the main dining room. Okay. So what that means is I had an 11 table station with a private dining room. If you've ever waited tables, that's crazy. Right. In fine dining. Hence the brothel of a thousand dollars sometimes. Right. <laughs> I was, I loved it. And I treated my bar, my bar was the last place you could get a $45 ribeye with a foie gras on top uh, and a $1,500 bottle of wine and smoke a cigarette. I was essentially tending to lobbyists and politicians and people from also date night. And, you know, like a lot of celebrities came through town and yeah. ate at Jeffrey's and they would eat in the bar. Cause it was sort of like the casual spot, but, um, but yeah, I was doing through my shop. I did a lot of tailoring for a lot of the family's friends and, and things like that. Right. And I was always requested 
to this wait on. This is an amazing story that you moved to DC at request <laughs> from a president. I loved his wife. I loved Laura. Laura. Bush. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so anytime I lived in the Watergate, because anytime they or anyone in their close circle would come to eat. Obviously it was a different experience, a lot of secret service and this and that, but I was basically on call 24 seven, you know, throw on the tuxedo and, right. and run downstairs Whoa. in the old aquarelle space. Come on, this is so fun. That was fun. It was yeah. fun. I liked that. I liked that going back to I'm a seven, uh, cobbling there. together a life that Maybe wasn't fun because I was alone living in a hotel and waiting tables and mm. like my friends were back there and my future was a big question mark, <clears throat> but it was fun because I could feel the city unrolling. I could feel the story unraveling as I lived it, if that makes sense. I could feel like I would go on walks through, um, through the foggy bottom area over there towards the, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. It matters to anyone who loves DC, but, um, DuPont circle. And I would go out and it would be my mission to find weird food for $10 or less. Cause there's so many different ethnicities oh. in DC and I would just eating in DC. Yeah. is a glorious experience. And it's better if you get the weird side street food, yeah. you know, and, and Ethiopian food. That's what I was going to say. You know, I grew up around DC. No, yeah. I grew up in Northern Virginia. No, I, I did Arlington, not. Leesburg. Okay. Hamilton, which is out in Auden County. Mm. I grew up, we grew up going to DC. Didn't know this. In, in, in Northern Virginia. My oh dad gosh. would be in DC and uh, a lot. So. What's your favorite thing about DC? Probably the museums. I was just like going to Air and Space is, and yeah. like the Natural History Museum. I mean, there's just so much accessible yeah. that is obviously the top of the top, the creme de la creme of yeah. all the artifacts of a lot of the artifacts of history. Um, so I feel like Smithsonian's is like my my jam and my happy place. Yeah. Yeah. I saw Interstellar uh, many years ago in the Air and Space Museum in 3D, whatever, IMAX, whatever. That was, must have been amazing. Oh, so, oh, it was glorious. That sounds okay, glorious. Okay, we digress because we need to get to New York City. And We're not there. things to talk about. Yep. So. Yep, yep, yep. Um, but I do need to pipe in, and I have a feeling this was after your time. My favorite work in the Smithsonian complex was um, at the Hirshhorn Museum, their outdoor mm -hmm. sculpture garden. Yoko Ono has the wishing tree. It's basically a tree, and I'm not sure if it's a live tree or a sculpture of a tree, but right. you actually write your wish. It's like an interactive, ever-changing, ever-moving uh, sculpture out yeah. in the sculpture garden. I love that. Yeah. Anyway, so that's, so DC. Yes. That's how we got to DC. And I almost changed course and went to Portland, Oregon. And it was my dad, who is a very safety hearted man, like loves protection and security and loves everything to be done right. He was the one who told me, if you dare change your plans, you have been working to move to New York City for as long as I've known you were making plans. Like right. since you stopped college, you have been edging your way towards okay. New York city. Yeah. He said, if you don't go, you have just let the terrorists win. And my dad doesn't scold me or lecture me on much. Like mm -hmm. he's, he's, he parents, he leads well. He parents with a, with a thoughtful hand, 
but he was serious about that. He was like, you have a social responsibility to follow through with your dreams right now. You are not letting fear lead. And I am forever grateful that I did. Cause although I never would want to live in New York city forever, I'm not a big city girl. And my destiny was here. Mm-hmm. You know, my husband is here and my home is here. Right. Those, uh, it was 2001 to 2009. So those eight years in New York city, um, built my career. Right. So yeah. Yeah. What were all the things that you stepped into in New York? Oh, it was fun. Yeah. I, um, I knew I knew the blow up, the movie blow up. And if you haven't seen the movie blow up, please see the movie blow up. It is charming and delightful and kitschy and costumey and wonderful. And, and in French, uh, it's in French. <laughs> they have subtitles. Sure. Um, but, uh, but I moved there. Obviously I used waitressing as my backbone. Um, but I found a studio. I was, uh, building, custom rock and roll clothing in a funky studio in Dumbo, the mm-hmm. district under the Manhattan Bridge overpass before Dumbo was what Dumbo is now, which is a, a very, very, very high end commercialized. Yeah. Developed. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the day, there was like one weird food court yeah. and one building full of like really cheap it art was like studios. The far reaches, the far edges. Like yeah. how do you even get to Dumbo? How do you, you get to Dumbo? There unless yeah. You're like, very specifically going there. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's the most magical place in the world. It's so amazing. <laughs> so I had a studio there and uh, a woman from a publication. I was building stage clothing. That's That was my passion. I was very... When I moved to New For... York City... Uh, musicians. Okay. Um, when I moved to New York City, I moved... F- I was like the second or the third person to move. And then my entire little scene from Austin, it was like autumn of little, cute, beautiful, well-dressed young people falling from a tree. If the tree was Austin, we all just sort of tumbled in New York city. By the time I feel like the migration ended, there were about 18 of us who came within the span of a year. And, um, we just, your guild from there, just a lot of them. It was not the design guild. Melanie came, my best friend. Um, it wasn't the designers. It was all musicians, photographers. Just, oh, got it. it was just like two of us left and everybody else was like, I'm going. So I moved to New York city. Basically I was one of the first, I, I had a, a very dear friend who was living there already. And I moved in with her. Um, but once we were there and you know, we just, we started living our life and we were doing okay. I think it really set fire to a lot of other imaginations, mm-hmm. but what was fun and warm about that is that it was kind of like, you know, within two months I had my family again and we were all together in a new place. Um, so I loved that, but I found, I got written about in a little publication. Somebody heard about me making custom pants for musicians. It's quote by David Bowie is the difference between a a musician and a rock star is the cut of his pants. Mm-hmm. So I went with that. I was, right. I was making some tight pants on some cute musicians. Some money off of that. that is right. We actually did not really make any money in the creative time of my life, but it was a launching pad to make a lot of money. Um, but I enjoyed myself back to that. Like I love life when I love life when I can feel a beautiful story happening 
under my feet and at my fingertips and with me. Like I like my days rich and full and weird. I just do. Um, this COVID time is a whole new kind of rich and full and weird. (laughs) So many levels on so many levels, but, uh, but, but yeah, no, I, I liked that. I, I rented, um, no. So they wrote this article about me, but then the magazine folded, but then a year later she called me and said, are you still doing the pants? And I said, sure. Yeah, I'm still doing the pants. She said, great. Can I go ahead and publish that? magazine article in another magazine. I was like, absolutely. So in the New York magazine with a pretty hefty circulation, um, complete with a photo that they brought a photo shoot out and did, they talked about me making custom pants and overnight I had an order queue of about 500 orders. So I took them to clients at a time. I rented this within a week. I rented a studio in the old Andy Warhol factory building in union square. I found two little creative humans who could sew and think out of the box. Cause that's what I needed. And I bought a used industrial straight stitch and a used industrial serger. So mm-hmm. I waited tables to support myself. Right. And then by day I did this and, um, I won't say I won't say I liked it at all. It was a lot of work, but I learned a lot. I learned about being a leader. I learned about setting manageable expectations. I learned about, um, how devastating getting pressed before you're ready is. It's one of my big, uh, put the brakes on with social media. When you put yourself out as something you're really not, the repercussions could be that the world could believe you and start asking of you. Right. Oh yeah. So it took me two and a half years to get through all 500 requests. Not that I made them all something, a lot of them, you know, like lost interest by a year and nine months later when I'd call and say, you reached out to me. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You're up. (laughs) And that's how it went. You know, I committed, I said, I can handle two of these a week. And that's what I did. Um, But while this was all happening, um, you know, I was, I was connecting with bigger and bigger bands and I was doing a lot more collaborative, creative work. I got a, I got featured on the cover of the New York times Sunday style section and I was getting a lot of credibility, which got me my place in my agency. So that was when I feel like my life story began, right? Not my life story. My life story has been the whole thing, but the sort of creative life story where I really grew into a professional tailor. Mm-hmm. Um, I became, I found an agent who booked tailors out on fashion industry photo shoots. Lars. Lars Nord. You heard that story. I've heard Lars for a lot of years. You've heard Lars for a lot of years. I think you even met Lars on the Bruce Weber shoot with the camels. Did I? Briefly. Yep. But it was, you guys were also coming in at the end of the day yeah. in a big flurry of everything. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, do you want me to get into the story of how I get into the agency or do you want to ask me more questions about actual shoots? We could go in two directions. (laughs) So it's choose your own adventure, Dana. It is choose your own adventure. So in choose your own adventure, uh, I will probably go down some stories of, the clients that you got to work with and I need like one or two, at least like adventure stories in your life. For sure. Yeah. I know there's a sure. to grab from, but you've had, um, 
I think it's awesome. It's like, I'm not really a, a brand label person yeah. as much as that is significant, but I do love luxury. Yes. I love things that are excellent. I love things that are like yes. beautifully made and I don't want to wear a t-shirt with someone's logo on it, but I do want to buy a pair of shoes that are going to last me four years. Yeah. And still look beautiful, you know? So I would love to hear kind of some of those, um, stories that you've experienced in your life. I also have to pipe into Orlando. I have to pipe in Dana. Yeah. Um, and just kind of, just kind of validate what you just said about yourself for anybody listening who hasn't seen Dana's kind of day to day wardrobe. Uh One thing I love about you is that you are like a painter with silhouettes. Uh You are, you're a sculptor. (laughs) It's, um, I love your relationship to the clothes you wear and you're right. Mm -hmm. You do not rely on brands. You like, if if you find a good brand, you love it, but You have always inspired me with the way you put shapes together. They're always surprising mm-hmm. and, and you're not afraid of colors. No, no. That's not me. I am not a neutral in my home, in life. I'm not a, yes. not a neutral. No. 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 And no. it's it's fun. You're daring, but you're not daring in the way that your clothing inhibits you from living. It's that your colors almost make the experience of being with you slightly brighter and richer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're a designer. (laughs) You're a designer. You've you've got that. You're a stylist. That's what it is. Well, you are a stylist. I am a stylist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I do love, I get all of selling to people. I don't, I don't like, um, I don't know. I I like crafting environment or a book and creating something new and yeah. interesting and something that's not just, I don't know. Yeah. It, I mean, it goes into like, even like before I was introducing Enneagram, we will get there, but I yeah. always would be like, I don't dress like everyone else. Like yeah. that seems like so boring to me. And I understand like some people have capsule wardrobe and that's kind of like can do dress mindlessly and that works for their lifestyle. But I always couldn't understand like why I would just be like, I know that I need to enrich my life by how I, how I present myself to the world. Yes. Yeah. And so that's what's always intrigued me. It's like not about the dollars spent on like a certain thing. I don't, buy brand new clothes very often, but like I would invest in something that's like, like a Stuart Wiseman pair of, you know, leopard, you know, flats with tassels, you know, versus yeah. yeah. Don't get me started on fast fashion. You did not work in fast fashion very much. I want to hear about the clients that you had that are very much offering often a lot of beauty into the world. Well, you know, I did work a company that what I did as a freelance tailor is I, um, I'd be booked on a photo shoot if they were going to do an advertising campaign or a junket for a celebrity who's releasing a movie and they need to have all of their clothes ready for every public appearance, you know, moving on down. Um, and, uh, I do fashion shows. Uh, I would do celebrity appearances in town. So I can't name for you how many times that I've like shown up with my little wheelie suitcase at the Plaza hotel or some chic little Gansevoort something or other, you know, right. downtown or, you know, and, um, and gone in and, uh, sewn on the celebrities 
bedside table while they and their stylist and, you know, the entourage, right. you know, are waiting for me. Um, it was a fun career, but I think since you referenced luxury, one of my, um, I mean, my, my time when I was really, when I lived in New York city and I was really available to everything my agent offered me, I mean, it was just story after story after story. Mm-hmm. Um, I always, I always appreciate how much you love those stories. You and I used to have yeah. dinner together once a week, every Tuesday. Right. And anytime I brought up something from New York, it was like everybody else would just kind of roll their eyes like, oh, there she is again. And you would just like, no, stop. This Let's is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I love how much you love stories. I'm living uh, vicariously through these stories. Oh, you've got some stories of your own, sister. I do. You do. Yeah. I live through your travel stories. Yeah. I do. But um, so I've been there for a while. Uh, and one thing to know about me is that I got my first bottle of Oscar de la Renta cologne perfume when I was like 11 or 12 and I loved it. The bottle had like beautiful little flowers itched to the glass. And it just looked to me like a, it was this like wonderful little clear bottle with a black top. And it was just, it was my fancy thing. Mm -hmm. And the smell was light. Mm -hmm. Like it just smelled like pure Wayfish femininity. It was just. It transported you to oh, another yeah. world and life. And, and I'm a big yeah. green haired, hulking, six foot tall girl. You know what I mean? But I have this perfume that like reminds me of the smell of lilies when they're blooming. You know, when right. they have that, it's just so feminine and so sweet. Um, so anyway, I have always uh, loved Oscar de la, Rena, de la Renta's design because of this perfume. Sure. I still have a bottle to this day. It's just one of those. It's my signature thing. Everyone knew me back then. I've switched perfumes now. Okay. My husband and my son buy me my scents now, which I absolutely love. Um, but, but I just really always felt a very special admiration for Oscar de la Renta. I loved his, I love the way he expresses, uh, Oh, international sensibility, Mm -hmm. but every culture he translates, he translates through the same timeless elegance, timeless elegance. Oh yeah. Yeah. If he's going to do a Morocco collection, it is going to be sincerely elegant. Yeah. And his fabrics are luxurious. So I got booked on an Oscar de la Renta shoot and I did not know what I was in for. Okay. I started in his bridal boutique one day booking in New York city, in New York city. And I didn't know, I didn't know what I was going into. It was a four day booking. So day one was in the bridal boutique and there was the fit model. And then there was Oscar and there was the team and me. Mm-hmm. And I was fitting uh, one of a kind samples. They were the showroom samples. There were some wedding gowns and there were some, also some very brightly colored, uh, like evening gowns. Ah. So we did the primary fitting at the showroom. And then the next day I was on location. And when you're on location, you don't really know where you're going. Like you're given a call sheet and I'm supposed to be on like 57th street and fifth that, you know, like you're given a place to meet and they scoop you up and the rest is history and you go. Yeah. And you get into an SUV and you go to work. Um, but, uh, yeah, they took us to Oscar de la Renta's house. Ah. Yes. Wow. He was next door neighbors with, I think we drove past Martha Stewart's house with the black and white cows that color coordinated with the 
painting of the house, which I thought was amazing. Right. This episode of Cocktails in Conversation is brought to you by The Dinner Party Project. The Dinner Party Project is all about connecting humans around the dinner table. Right now, we are mostly based in Orlando, Florida. Whether it's joining seven strangers in an intimate setting around a dinner table or sitting in the street of Orange Avenue with 100 others watching flamethrowers, we love helping people feel connected to others and their city. We also offer private parties. So if you have a birthday, anniversary, team building dinner, or corporate event coming up, we can create a custom memorable event that you and your guests won't soon forget. We also help brands connect with their consumers by exposing their product in an elevated way to their target demographic. So if you live in the Orlando area and haven't joined us yet, what are you waiting for? We can't wait to hear your story around the dinner table. For more information, you can visit us at thedinnerpartyproject.co. And uh, at Oscar de la Renta's house, his house was a very manicured French garden, labyrinths, trimmed to a T, you know, nothing wild about it. Very sculpted. And we were basically shooting. My sense is that it was a whimsical, uh, shoot where all of these one of a kind, um, showroom sample formal wear gowns in colors of like primary red and Royal blue. It almost felt like Alice in Wonderland in a sense. So I'm sitting at my tailoring station and the photographer is literally running after the models like they're playing catch. And then the Digitech would be following after the photographer and the models like this. It really did look like an Alice in Wonderland scene. But I remember I was sitting in Oscar's uh, his patio, his terrace outside of, there was a little guest house and then a little tiny terrace and then the main house and then the huge estate. And they had me set up outside under a tent, like a little folding table. And I'm working on the samples and I realize there's someone behind me Mm -hmm. and I hear two little boys and two dogs. And I look up and I see Oscar de la Renta watching me. So Oscar de la Renta. Right. No pressure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no big deal. And he walked out and he's just kind of said in a, in a, in his language, he goes, Oh, very nice. And then he walked away and that was that. But, um, but yeah, that was, that was one of those moments where you really realize like, I real. have just with my talent, with my skill set. Mm-hmm. I have just touched my legend. I've just touched my hero. And, um, yeah, it was a proud moment. Sure. That was a proud moment. Yeah. I have looked for that shoot a thousand times. Okay. I never kept record of what I was doing because I did it so much. I never thought it would end. Right. Um, but anyway, so what else? That was the luxury story. Mm-hmm. Do you want a celebrity story? Yes. Okay. So at the time... I had a, um, this, this is pertinent information because it'll lead back to, um, to a story. So I was dating and living in a little apartment with in Gramercy park. Um, the, uh, one of the musicians in the band called Wilco Mm -hmm. and at this, yeah, Mm -hmm. loved them. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, anyway, I got booked to do a Gwyneth Paltrow junket. So she was releasing the movie. I think it was called proof. 
Okay. And she only had Apple and Apple was tiny. And she was married to Chris Martin from sure. Coldplay. Yes. So I, this, this is when I had my studio in Union Square. The stylist met me at my studio in Union Square. And then we piled, we went to her studio and we piled probably $10 million worth of original showroom samples from Paris and Milan and everywhere around the world yeah. in black bags into the back of a Lincoln town car. And went down to Tribeca to, to Gwyneth's house. She wanted to do the fitting at her house. She wanted to be in her home. Right. And so I understanding I'm the tailor. I don't make I don't make the decisions on how the clothes should look. I give execute the work. Yeah. I give guidance on like this might look nicer if the shape is a little different, but I am not I'm not stylist. No, I'm not right. picking the top and the bottom or you know, right. that's a whole different career in itself. That's your job. Right. Um, and, and so we go and Gwyneth Paltrow is the loveliest, nicest human being you've ever met. I'm so humble, so down to earth. And we're about the same age. Right. And I feel like our style was very similar. Our body type was very similar. Like just, I was just this like, you know, like we're just a couple of girls doing our thing. She just happens to be an iconic celebrity. Um, this is before goop. This is kind of before Iron Man. And, um, but, uh, and you know, I'm her tailor, but we just really, I felt like in another life, I had a sense like, this is somebody who in another world, we would have been friends. Right. So we do the fitting. It takes hours. I take it all back to my studio. No pressure. Just put, you know, a couple million dollars with samples in the back of a taxi and go back to the studio. Because you know? <laughs> um, most of the time, if I'm on a shoot, I'm in a studio or at a location and I am not responsible for the garments. This was another level of responsibility. But um, we, I tailored all the clothes and then I was booked to go back and drop the clothes off. Mm-hmm. And the stylist called me and said, Bonnie, I am so sorry. I have been booked because normally I would never go to a celebrity's home without the stylist because the stylist has to okay the looks. Uh, that is the stylist job. Sure. If you're working with a celebrity, you have to do the final fit and you have to give the final okay. But the stylist. And also from the tailor, in case anything needs to be adjusted, it has to be... It has to be sculpted to the celebrity. The celebrity does not need to think about their clothes. They're too public. They, right. you know, they just have to, you know, it has to be for them. Um, and, uh, and so I get there, I say, okay, I'll go, but understand, you know, like I'll be speaking for you and, and you have to have my back. She's fine, fine, fine. I'm in Los Angeles. You need to get these clothes to Gwyneth. Please fit her one final time. And, you know, I'll trust your judgment. I'm like, fair enough. Here we go. (laughs) So I show up at the house again. And like, I'm in her bedroom, you know, where she and Chris sleep and Apple's running around in her new, you know, she had just gotten her first pair of Clarks. So it was a big day for her. And, um, and I remember like, it was just such a fun, natural day. Like I pulled the samples out, threw them in the closet. We just started throwing them on Mm -hmm. and laughing and telling stories. And then she didn't like the jewelry, the way that it was set up from the stylist. She's like, let's just play dress up. And we changed all the jewelry around and, and ended the day. It was just one of these, like one of those wonderful moments where you're just like, 
in the middle of this crazy celebrity world, you know, these are still humans at the bottom of it, yeah. just making friends and laughing and yeah. having fun and exploring beauty is, that is so fun. That was a fun story. Oh, but the reason that I talked about the boyfriend I was living with at the time, uh, Wilco was opening for Coldplay like a week later. Okay. And so my ex was getting off the stage and, you know, Gwyneth and Chris, Chris were rolling up in a golf cart and, um, and my ex said to Gwyneth, Oh, I think, you know, my girlfriend. And she looked at him and she was like, okay. And, and he said, Bonnie. And she just melted. She was like, oh. I love Bonnie. Tell her I said hi. So I don't think she'd remember me now, right. but, um, she was, she you was, had a moment. we did. Yeah. We did. I had one of those moments where I was like, I could see a friendship forming if we were a different that life and a different so time. Incredible. The fun and story. One of a kind story. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the day. Is it that you happen by chance and then you take advantage, take advantage of and live in, live in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And then also have these stories to tell. Yeah. It's pretty great. Yeah. So we need to at least touch a little bit on Ralph. Okay. Because that has been a mainstay. Yeah. And deep, deep friendships and deep relationships. Yes. And yes. still. And still. Yeah. yeah. I just... I just tailored, um, here in Orlando, I still work for Ralph Lauren. Um, I, uh, I am their lead tailor for their sponsored golf professionals and the U S open just happened. Mm -hmm. So I literally last week just shipped out three boxes of perfectly tailored Ralph Lauren samples to three different golf pros who had all qualified for the U S open. So, okay. so I still do that, but, um, no, it was funny. Ralph Lauren was my agent, Lars North's largest client. Mm -hmm. They have, I mean, if you know Ralph Lauren, it's not just Ralph Lauren, it's blue label, black label, purple label collection, you know, American living chaps and everything in between double RL there's yeah, it's a polo RLX sport. You know, it is the Ralph Lauren, um, Ralph Lauren's sort of, uh, American luxury, mm -hmm. iconic American luxury, translates itself to every price point so that everybody who wants to connect with his story, mm -hmm. um, can. So anyway, I, um, I was brand new in my agency and Ralph Lauren is still, they're very much a family. So even though I was a freelancer, I felt very much like a part of the team when I was with the team mm -hmm. because they like to have most companies just book a new, a new, uh, you know, like a new collection of professionals for each shoot. Right. Um, based on who's available, based on who's doing something that's relevant to their current collection. Ralph Lauren finds people who are a good fit for the team and then keeps them and holds them tight and never lets them go. Right. So I started with Ralph Lauren in 2001 I, they kept me on through a full year of me developing an inner city after school program that made me unavailable to them a whole lot. Right. They were my client who hired me more than ever. And they would just make it possible for me to go teach at three. Mm. Yeah. And then when I had, when I became a mama, they gave me the time to, you know, like settle into motherhood and then took me back with open arms. So it's been 
a beautiful, it's 2019. It's been a beautiful 18 years of real relationship with an amazing company. But um, I'm trying to think of which story to tell. Oh, it was fun. So I proved myself to my agent. My agent took me on a job physically with him. Because so he could see you in action? Exactly. Ah. And it was a Victoria's Secret fashion show with the wings and the diamonds and the thongs and all that, right? Yeah. And he had a project that he was stumbling over. But because I had a Make Anything studio in Austin, Texas, I had worked for strippers. I had made all right. plastic bras for titty dancers. Like, I... I, I no judgment. Right. You know, I was, I was the I will make anything... I was the atelier. That just means workroom in French. It's not any one thing or any not other thing. It was just, you know, let's do that. So he was struggling trying to make an orange, basically like umbrella fabric, see-through umbrella fabric bra for Naomi Campbell. And um, I was kind of watching him and he looks at me and he goes, could you please do this? And I was watching him struggle through it. So I was designing how I would do it. And then you just said... Yeah. And just take over and, and I had already, it was kind of like God meant me to have this career because I had already done all the troubleshooting on how to do this. Mm-hmm. Cause you can't poke a hole in it. Cause it'll, the hole will be there. You know, it's, it doesn't sew with a regular foot. So you have to have a special foot, which I had purchased for the project in Austin. So I was ready, but it was funny. It was like, he threw in my lap a pitch. Exactly what you were prepared for. Boom. And he just sat back and watched me throw together this bra thinking that it was going to be a sad moment where he'd just have to let me go. You know what I mean? Like I was the newbie and he didn't really want to expand his agency, but I stalked him for so long. He just like (laughs) gave in and let me on a shoot. Um, but, uh, a week later I get a call and um, his booking agent, Joyce, who's an amazing woman and had, she had the most amazing voice. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and imitate her because everyone needs to experience okay. Joyce the voice. We all called her Joyce the voice. She was tiny and gorgeous and bright blue eyes. And she was, but she was a huge voice. She, Bonnie, it's Joyce. How are you? So Ralph wants you. They like you. I think this is a good thing. Are you ready to go to the islands? Pack your bags. Seven days. And she gives me a date. I think I'm going to Long Island, right? Oh. No. Yeah. I get an airplane ticket. Thank God I have a passport. I go to Jamaica. Montego Bay. My first job with Ralph Lauren was Montego Bay in Jamaica at this beautiful historic resort that's all little bungalows like on the beach. And oh, I got to spend nine days just sitting in a little hut by the ocean with my sewing machine set up uh, ocean breeze and it life. was the collection was what's called men's in-store so it was all the advertising you'd see in bloomingdale's or macy's or whatnot uh-huh. so it was like nine iconically beautiful ralph lauren male models tough life i know oh, tough life. i know And I love every one of those people. There were, it was just the cool, they just, they just collected a really, a really cool team. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I've that, I don't, I don't, I mean, I have, I have amazing stories from Ralph Lauren. I have traveled all over the world with, with Ralph Lauren and I have made huge mistakes on Ralph Lauren shoots and I have done incredible heroic things on Ralph Lauren shoots. And I feel like the team 
it's evolved over the years, which has been heartbreaking because the team is so tight. Um, but new people have come up and, and I feel like they're just people that when I'm at the end of my life, I will look back on this. It's odd relationships because we don't live near each other and, you know, like we're not necessarily in each other's lives, but when we come together yeah. at the airport at location, um, it's like, it's like family reunion. no time has passed. Yeah. You just slip back into it. And, um, yeah, so I'm very, yeah. My last job that was canceled was a Ralph Lauren shoot. I was supposed to go and go down to South Florida and I was just packing my bags and I get the email that said, we're sorry, we've suspended all photo advertising. Like the rest of the world. Here we are. Yes, we are. So your New York days were an incredible fly-by-night adventure. Yeah, loved them. And you ended up transitioning to Orlando, to St. Simon's Island. I did. And that was, that was a moment there. Yeah. And for time's sake, we'll probably keep on. We'll, we'll slip past that. It was beautiful. It was beachy. I had a baby. I got to be pregnant and then give birth and then nurse a beautiful, spectacular little boy in a little tiny cottage right by the ocean. Yeah. So two years. Pretty dreamy. Lovely two years. To just be. Yeah. Then you came to Orlando with a young Nicholas. I did. Yeah. I did. When I met him, he was not walking. No. Hours. I mean, obviously, he was still in diapers, but I mean. No, he loved your house because you had all these fun objects everywhere. Uh-huh. And he wasn't walking, but he was cruising. Yeah. So I remember Nick strolling around the Rockmore home, <laughs> grabbing this and that. And yeah. As you do when you're a toddler. Yeah. 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 So tell us a little bit how you have transitioned to Orlando briefly, but I would really also like to focus a little bit on what you're currently doing right now. And even in the past six months, there's been projects that you've been passionate about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Orlando's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Hmm. I can't believe I'm telling you that. Right. But it is true. It is true. Uh, My choice to move to Orlando was it wasn't going to work out with Nick's dad, Uh but Um, I wanted to be near him, you know, I wanted to raise Nick with them, but I also needed to work. So there wasn't enough for me on St. Simon's Island. Um, and my brother and my sister lived in Orlando Mm -hmm. and my parents who were in Falls Church, Virginia, your stomping ground. Very familiar. Yep. Sure. You, sure you are. You probably know their neighborhood. Your, your, your dad. Dad and stepmom. Yep. Um, was your mom still in California this time or she had moved to Orlando? Mom was in an ALF in first Oviedo and now she's in Sanford. Okay. Thriving away. Right. Just doing amazing. Right. It's another conversation for another day, but she's great and right. she's part of our lives. Um, but yeah, no, that was another big reason was that if my brother and my sister were here and my mom were here, I could settle down near family. Mm-hmm. Raise my son. And a mom at the time. Yeah. yeah. But also raise my son more than getting support, just giving Nicholas the experience of living, growing up near family. Mm-hmm. That was always, you know, a sadness for me being far away. So, and then my parents retired early and they moved to Orlando. So we had this like re- reverse migration from mm-hmm. Northern California, everybody all over the world. Then landed in Orlando. Orlando. Yeah. We, my parents, I now live a block and a half from my parents. We live in old winter park. We just moved in on June 6th and we walked to dinner last night 
And uh, then when it was done, we walked home. <laughs> that's so beautiful. It's really nice. Not yeah. Many people have that luxury. Yeah. yeah. No, Orlando was all about, and I think I was destined to come to Orlando because if you can hear in my experience and what I'm focused on, uh, traditional relationships were never my strong point. Mm -hmm. I had lots of relationships, but I just, and my husband is definitely the love of my life and he was solidly here. Right. So, uh, you know, I just, I just feel like all things happened. Did little wild find him. It did. Yeah. It did. We, we went down some. We did. We, <laughs> <laughs> she's laughing at my dating adventures right now. <laughs> and since you and I used to have dinner together every Tuesday, yeah. we, you definitely had a lot of those stories. stories. story. Which we're not going to share here. No. <laughs> Moving right along. Moving right along. But for anybody who's out there and single and feels like they're unlovable, have hope. <laughs> it can work out in a beautiful way. It can. It did for you and your it did. husband. My boo. Yeah. My bride, my boo. So yeah, I moved to Orlando. Um, do you want to hear about professional things? Do you want to hear about... What do you yeah, want to hear about? What kind of what kind of interested you? I mean, Orlando is not New York City, um, no. so you did have I think a huge privilege to continue your working relationship. I and did. You had this. I mean, I've heard you ten times along the ten years be like, "Oh, this is I'm done. I'm closing up shop with my brow. <laughs> with anything. I will be solely based out of Orlando. If I can get anything here, I'll get it here. But it's not then." But obviously, that's never the truth. Um, but you've had a really lucky spot to continue yeah. the passion of being able to do really cool adventures with brands that you love. And yeah. then to continue to grow your passion of sewing, which has been a through line from California. I mean, you've worked through that and still have a passion for, you know, creating things and then also helping people to create their own, you know, clothing. Yeah. Make it their own. It's funny. It's like a, it, it feels like a very good marriage where sometimes I'm sick of it and sometimes I love it and it keeps rising out of the ashes mm -hmm. as a new life. New iterations. Yeah. yeah. It's, it never dies in me, Right. but you're right. I did take for granted Ralph Lauren when I was first living here and I had a dream life. I was a single mom for the first four years in Orlando, but your scale of income is so different on a photo shoot because you're freelance. They assume you're going to work a little, but you have to live. So I had Nick and his dad and I had a really harmonious co-parenting relationship. Right. So I would get, you know, bookings. They'd take me away for five days and that would be enough for me to provide for myself and my child for a month. Right. And his dad Sorry, my throat's getting dry. Um, his dad would would just take him for extra time while mm. I was, you know, I'd go out for five days. I'd earn all the money that we needed, and then I'd come back. And we lived a simple, simple life, life, but yeah. it was a beautiful life. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I'd take friends on photo shoots and mm -hmm. introduce them to the to the team there in hopes that they would need a little local stylist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's always still the dream Ugh. so from there kind of fast forwarding to current um i would love to talk about the 
the mask project with oh, the past six yes. The connections that you had there and then even yeah. how it kind of leads into your current project of Yeah. Yeah. I think that you're offering. In my life story, I think Orlando Face Mask Strong is gonna be my proudest moment. Mm. And it's not like I really did anything. It's that I took one of those weird calls and said, okay, and did it. It was a four in the morning, you know, so we're in the early pandemic season. Yeah. Something you guys don't know about me is my dad who raised me was a retired surgeon. Right. And I'm very close to my parents, very close to my dad. And, um, so I have such a heart for the commitment of medical professionals because I grew up and my stepmom was a medical records, you know, uh, basically ran five hospitals, their medical records departments, and then ended up teaching at Georgetown, Mm. uh, medical safety and procedures. So this was her world. So we're in kind of, I want to say it was early March, like March 7th, we start hearing that there are outbreaks in California and entire hospitals Mm. are treating COVID, they're, they're COVID facing, they're treating COVID positive patients and they're wearing bandanas to work. And, and it's becoming, I feel like that moment that was taking over the news that this virus is, is on the rise in certain places. We weren't seeing it in Orlando. That was, that was a tricky reality. Not yet. Not then. Not then. We're seeing it in the news, but but seeing stories on social media of nurses who can't get PPE. And, and so I just started thinking, you know, one thing that we're not going to talk about, but I'm just going to quickly brush over is I did spend, um, first five years of my life running a workroom for Disney, which was basically draft any pattern, have a team of 12 tailors in my little workroom at Favo, the faith arts village, Orlando, and provide anything Disney needs Mm -hmm. to the parks all over the world. So I'm a really good technical designer, right? Uh, Diving deep into textiles for their functionality and ability to withstand fire and water is my comfort zone. It's, it's, I, I'm geeky and it appeals to me. That's my tech side. Like I like fashion and I love experience, but I love going deep into a fiber. I love scientific research. I love, oh man, when this challenge was accepted so gladly, when all of a sudden I realized you're, you are a pattern maker, right? You can fit the body like a sculptor chisels lips. That's Mm -hmm. what you do. You are a textile expert. You are a technical textile expert. So get to work. So I started looking for what, what's an N95 made out of non-woven polypropylene. It's completely sold out in all factories, back ordered. And the only people they'll, they'll distribute it to are, uh, already longstanding clients. So not going to get that. So then I go deeper and well, what else in our world? And now I'm starting to think because as we're getting more and more news and Orlando is starting to get news of shortage of PPE and people I know are going to work and not able to get a face mask or being asked to reuse a face mask or doctors being prioritized to be given face masks and other people on the hospital staff, not getting face masks. You're hearing stories like that from people, you know, right. Um, and we're facing something we've never faced before in my lifetime, which is we are going to be restricted to shelter in place. Mm-hmm. 
So I had to get really creative, Mm -hmm. really creative. I had to find a textile that we all had in our homes. And at this point, they didn't have any studies yet about what was effective for filtering the virus, the tiny little microns. Um, They didn't know anything. We just were winging it. But uh, it turned out that those non, those reusable shopping bags that you get at Publix are made from a commercial grade, not a medical grade, but a commercial grade non-woven polypropylene. Right. And during the H1N1 crisis, they actually did one study of the effectiveness of um, textiles to filter the virus. Mm -hmm. So they didn't say anything about non-woven polypropylene, but they did say something about vacuum cleaner bag filters, which were also non-woven polypropylene, which were very highly effective at filtering. So I just started doing math. I was like, okay, N95s filter 95% of the virus. Vacuum bag filter, which you can't breathe out of, is made out of the same material. Even if a shopping bag is not as good, mm-hmm. it's going to be so much better than nothing, you know, sure. and we can get it in home mm-hmm. and I can, I can, I've already run at the same time that I was doing the Disney business. I ran in a, a sewing school. So I know that I can, I know I can teach people. I know I can lead people to make one thing like a cookie cutter. That's what I do. I teach sewing like yoga teachers teach yoga. I teach repetition. I teach muscle memory. Right. I teach deep familiarity with your tools. I'm going to release my students to go into whatever direction their imagination leads them because I believe in the imagination first and foremost. Yeah. I'm very focused on just move with me in these simple ways and you will be free if you just remember what that feels like. That one movement at the beginning of every stitch. So they were getting the instructions. And yes. They were kind of yes. Out to- and I've already taught hundreds of people how to sew with right. common sewing the business that had a brick and mortar face here in Orlando. Right. So I knew, I knew I could lead an army of do-gooders. Mm-hmm. So anyway, <laughs> that's, that's the background information for four o'clock in the morning. I can't sleep. So I wake up and I'm like, well, I'm just going to go do dishes because laying in bed kind of sweaty and worrying sucks. <laughs> so I just got out of bed Right. and I'm doing dishes. And you know, those moments when you actually get a voice, mm-hmm. um, it was, it was funny. It was just like, I need you to sit down at the computer and I need you to speak and I will get them there, but you need to go and tell them. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd been thinking like overthinking how to start, mm-hmm you know, like a a community movement, but it was funny. I just wrote a post and then asked a bunch of people to share it. And within two days we had a thousand volunteers. Wow. I was on the news. It was amazing. Today we've made 36,000 masks. We, um, 36,000 masks. We, and what I need to stress is I was the one who made the pattern because that was my skill set, right? I was the one to speak the call because I'm very good at writing and I'm very good at like, I'm very good at narrowing it down to what is the issue? What's the essential issue here Mm -hmm. and activating people to move on that. I'm very, I'm a, I'm a vision caster. I can speak what I suck at is once the movement got going, 
uh, tending to the community and being consistent with the language and the communication. And so we had these amazing leaders. Anne Ramey, who lives around the corner from me, is an organizer extraordinaire and to this day runs the depot out of her house for supplies. And Danielle Ziss, the the leader of the Orlando Story Club, Mm -hmm. is I've never seen anybody love on and tend to a community right. like she does. So I needed to be very clear to anyone listening because this was something Orlando loved our movement. It wasn't me. I started it. And so for that, I got very, I got a lot of recognition, but I did not. Yeah. I'm not the one who drove it forward. Um, it evolved because of people would redesign my design and make it easier for other sewers. And like, we all stuck with this basic template, but other leaders in the sewing community, Lane Missiman, I don't want to name names, but Beth Blanton, Lane Missiman and Michelle Morrison and a number of other people's, anyone listening, if I didn't name your name, it's just because I'm now I feel bad because I feel like I'm going to leave people out. But anyway, you all led each other to a better practice and better service. We were sponsored by Rifle Paper Company. They gave yeah. us enough textile That's to make 23,000 masks. That's beautiful. And we partnered with Nemours Hospital and we made, uh, we were given money do- donations. So we were able to get medical they kept their shipments of PPE kept getting cut off and they were, they were dwindling down to the hundreds. So we stepped in and we were able to donate, I think like three or 4,000 actual medical masks that were handmade from medical PP polypropylene. And then we were able to donate to every one of their patients and their families rifle masks and their support staff, rifle fabric masks, but we still had thousands of textiles for rifle. So when school started to go back in place, we started the, the, I think it was called the mask a teacher movement. And we just put the call out to our community again, and they stepped up and we've now donated the rest of the masks to teachers and students. That's beautiful. That was fun. That was fun. How does that also connect now with the moment that you're in with your own business? Oh, yeah. Well, Dana. (laughs) Um, so, you know, I honestly, my, my dream business, the thing that I was called to very young and that I have done every one of my careers, Mm -hmm. I feel like has been in service of, I've known one day that I wanted to teach sewing, Mm -hmm. but I didn't want to teach sewing in a little way. I wanted to create a program that was so concise, so approachable. Yeah. So fun and modern and chic, but also easy and simple and, you know, like uncomplicated. Um, I've been asking the best tailors in the world for 20 years on these photo shoots. What are the essential skills of sewing? When I was doing my Disney business, I was thinking about what are the things that I do again and again? Mm -hmm. What does someone need to know? I want the food movement in the eighties when people actually stopped using boxed things and began falling back in love with cooking and Pampered Chef came out Mm -hmm. and it entered the home and people started using real ingredients again and feeding their families real food again. I want to see that movement happen. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's going to be me, but a lot like OFMS, I think I'm going to be one of the people who helps. Mm -hmm. So I have a sewing, I had a sewing school called common sewing that was brick and mortar. And I stopped it because every time I taught a class, it was taking time away from my family. And I couldn't do that. I get one kid and one husband and one life. And I want all the time. 
not going to do it. But I realized with OFMS that I could digitize patterns. Mm-hmm. I can teach through videos. And it was like the, the, the Holy Spirit gave me this massive white light, like, and, and go. Mm-hmm. And now. Right. You've already developed the lessons. You've already launched businesses. You've already launched makers who make their entire wardrobes and have foregone all shopping. I've launched people with my program to become real makers. I've launched lifestyle makers. I've mm-hmm. launched people who just needed joy in their lives and the community and making something with their hands made them feel really good. Right. I know the program works. So I am not actually going to talk to you about common sewing because right now it's not launched yet. It's launching. Uh, my lessons are being video videotaped, professionally videotaped on Thursday. So you can access them from your dining room right? in your pace of your time. Um, you will be in a private Facebook group cohort. Uh, I'm only taking 50 people in my launch. Okay. It's in process. Um, it's not live on the website yet, but people, if they want to read more about it, Mm -hmm. I'm blogging about my history, my past and my vision on commonsewing.com. So I don't want to talk too much about it because we're running short on time and you have some questions, (laughs) but I do want to say like, if anybody's captivated and if this speaks to anybody, please, you know, on Instagram, I share the story of, of the sewing school at common sewing, Mm -hmm. all one word, um, on Facebook. Yeah. Nobody had that. I can't believe nobody had common sewing, common sewing. And then on the, on, on, um, on the web, I'm commonsewing.com. And once I'm not sure, I think the launch is full. I'm only going to take 50 okay. students. That's exciting already. Because I want them to have deep, intimate access to me because they're going to help me work out the kinks. Mm-hmm. I want them asking me questions in the future. I won't be available anymore. It's a product, but in the launch, I will be very available zoom calls and a private Facebook group. So, um, if anybody, if this speaks to anybody, go to the website and email me, um, because I can wait list you for the launch. Um, I can also put you on the mailing list so that if you want to hear more, you can learn how to sew with me Yeah, and it's going to be cheap, which I like. Right. I want it to be accessible it's to everybody. everybody. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. And I just feel like you um, have also a very strong sense of like work ethic and Mm -hmm. wanting to offer things with excellence. And I just like appreciate you in my life and appreciate Mm -hmm. you like in the community as far as like how you have dug into a bunch of crazy projects, (laughs) but also um, really honing in on the beauty that is to show up for your son and for Mm -hmm. your husband and the prioritizing of that, which I think is, will outlive you course and so it's like business is business and that's never going away but you know like investing um you know in your community um and in your family and that is such a beautiful and special thing thank you thank you for seeing that that is my core value right now it is a core value it is it is everlasting in of course like growing the people that are obviously will be the next generation and then how you're treating one another in these times and in all the times in our lives. You know, I think that that is the most important occupation that anybody can have, yeah. you know, whether it's, you know, me with my nieces and nephews or just, you know, like in, mm-hmm. in family and nothing is perfect. I mean, obviously we are stumbling uh, forward, hopefully, but uh, you prioritizing that is um 
really special. So we are going to touch on, I wish we had hours and hours left, but one of my favorite no. topics is the Enneagram. Yes, it is. Um, and so it is interesting to, I think, like we've talked about a little bit, fully land on the right number that yeah. you are. And sometimes like I took the test and I tested as a seven and then I really kind of figured out that I was an eight through people speaking to my life and, and like reading it. And I mean, a big part of it was like, I read through all of them and I was like, Oh, I don't want to be an eight. But how it is a beautiful mirror that is um, reflecting to us all the beautiful things and the ways that were created and also some, more uncomfortable things in the ways that we are created, um, but really shining light on those things to be able to have a full awareness of, you know, obviously who we are and how we're created and then how do we show up, you know, in our world and yeah. our people. Um, the eight's the challenger. The eight is the challenger. Yeah. I can't believe that so. you didn't think you were an eight. You started the dinner party project. <laughs> you disrupted how people gather. I know. But <laughs> and created a whole sound. new environment. Right. <laughs> but I've also learned that in eight, we nine. And so the okay. nine is a peacemaker. Oh, and, and so, the peacemaker doesn't like that. Right. I don't like, I mean, I don't like, um, some like conflict and I, and I do and will address it like when I need to, but it, the AIDS can often relish that and they relish. I do relish people standing up to me and being strong enough to have a dialogue and me pushing back. Isn't me saying that I don't care about you. It's me saying, let's like, I want to understand more or like, I do feel this way. So I'm going to stick up for what I believe and I need you to stick up for what you believe or, talk about it with me. Right. Yes. And so it's, it's not, a, it's not a way of dismissing or being yeah. angry as much as it is challenging ideas. And, and I bet you don't get enough yeah. of that in your life because you are such a leader uh-huh. and you're such a voice that people look to. I'm going to guess mm-hmm. I could be wrong. Right. I'm going to guess you don't get enough healthy debate to your challenger nature. Somewhat. I mean, I have certain no. people in my life that I think that can can um, dialogue and go as far with me. Yeah. Um, I think the eights are the most misunderstood. Yeah. And so sometimes they can be a pretty like strong, forceful um, a presence. And then yeah. in in the pushback, sometimes people can get lost in saying like you don't care about me or like, you're just trying to like make me change my opinion or make me feel bad. And it's it's maybe not always from that point of view. It's just kind of more of how my brain works and I want to understand more. And I mean, a lot of times I want you to believe what I believe. (laughs) (laughs) You're changing reality. We got to go along. (laughs) But I would love to dive into, I know we had, uh, then a little bit of digging mm-hmm. into what you think you are as far as the Enneagram. So I'd love for you to, to share about that. Well, why don't we start as a launching point with what you think I am right. as the Enneagram? Cause you kind of shook me up with that one. It was interesting. I, I did dive into that. Right. I looked it over. So two things I think have, 
had stuck out to me when I was kind of thinking about Bonnie. Um, one was the three, um, which is the achiever. And I've kind of seen you, um, sometimes three can be very image conscious and, and that's not universal for that. Um, but the idea of having a goal and crushing a goal and to say yeah. like, if I have like my sight set on something, nothing's going to get in my way. I want to accomplish that. And so no matter what kind of, no matter what field it's in, um, you kind of look at something and then you have a very, like you said, very strong drive and focus, right? Yeah. They're very driven, um, kind of goals oriented. Like yeah. I want to pull this off. Um, so that for me just had always, and then the other one would be a seven. Like you are. Oh, you did have me tagged oh, as a yeah. seven. Okay. Cause you're all over the place. <laughs> 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 There's nothing. I know that life has changed now a lot and yeah. you're 47, but of what I've heard, I've known you for 10 years, but then even from before that, what I've heard of your life is just very adventurous and very all over the place and a yeah. free spirit and a free mind. And, um, you know, you've had a lot of growing, I think even in the past 10 years, um, seven sometimes really want to avoid pain. And so they don't often want to like sit and look at it so they can occupy themselves with, with everything else in the world. (laughs) (laughs) And so like sitting still long enough. They want, they want to be on the next plane to France or Tokyo or to, Yes. Back to San Francisco. I mean, like, right. So I've seen you have such an adventurous and free thinking purview of the world. So those were, I think, some of the ones that I had that has stuck out to me. I can validate. I've tested twice now Mm -hmm. as a seven. Right. But I'm not exclusively a seven. I am equally two things. Uh And I've tested twice. So growing up, I've done the Enneagram test once a long time ago. Right. Right. And it's funny, my Briggs-Myers testing also changed. Um, when I was young, I was an INFP. I took it cause I had a friend right. who was studying psychology and she was like, you absolutely must. And then she was so excited. You're, you're the rarest of all the personality. <laughs> I was like, everyone I know is the rarest of all, you know, it was just like right. <laughs> anyone who's bookish everyone is tests special in as way. an INFP and we're all, you know, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, but then I took it again. Uh, I was counseling with a Lutheran pastor right in very early motherhood. And she was just kind of mentoring me into motherhood. She was a really neat gift in my life. And she asked me to take the test and I evolved into an ENFP Hmm. and my life, my life grew me out of introversion into extroversion. Um, and so I've taken the Enneagram before, but I think it was back in a time when I really identified with myself as an artist mm-hmm. and really hid behind. I think I've kept my heart. I am so vulnerable and I'm almost paralytically empathetic. And like I, my, the strings of my heart move too much with other people uh-huh. that I think that I tested as a four mm-hmm. because for me, creativity and individuality were so pressing. Yes. yes. It was, it was just, that was my coping mechanism in a sense. Yeah. Cause you guys remember my childhood, right. <laughs> like we, we weren't, we weren't really launched out of just a healthy garden. There was a lot of growing up to do and a mm-hmm. lot of feeling to get through. 
so my artist identity was very much a protective identity. So I used to test a four and okay. I've, and I've walked around the world. I'm the individualist, right. you know, and it was funny. It was at your pool party. Mm-hmm. talking to Stefan Montessorin and friends, if you're listening, please, if you haven't go listen to the Stefan Montessorin's episode 12, 13, 13. Oh, I know. just a happy, happy, happy episode. Um, uh, talking to him, he kind of, he said, okay, I could see that, but he kind of challenged me a little and he sent me some links to take the test again. Uh-huh. And it was interesting because there's a part of me I have never really given credit to, but she's always been a very active part of me that I kind of like, almost feel like the servant hearted part of me is an expression of me that I do because I'm compelled. Like it's a drive. I was, I was at the top of my game in photo shoots in New York city and I just couldn't take it anymore. I had to be helping people that my life did not make sense. My life felt vacuous and airy. So, um, I closed myself into my house for a week in a prayer meditation. And the Lord answered with an invitation out of the blue to go and build an after-school program, teaching art in the inner city. And I just jumped on it. I basically thought I was going to jettison my career and, um, but I needed it. Right. There's a thing for me that I don't connect Mm. with enough, but I need to connect with more because I come to life when I'm using my energy. Mm -hmm. I'm privileged with resources. I am. There is no way around it. I grew up privileged with resources and, and, and I always have more than I need. So if I hit that spot and I am not giving of my time or giving of my resources, Mm to care for, care for people who aren't in the same moment I'm in, maybe in a different season or, you know, anyway, um, I begin to suffer in real ways that I can't fix myself. And the only fix I have is then like through Credo for two years, I built the program Credo Sows and the Paramore. And my whole vision was I can be a helping hand to help this after school program, you know, delight children, who need activity in those vulnerable times between school letting out and parents coming home. It's just, for me, I have a real heart for kids who are untethered. Yeah. Having been a kid who was untethered. So, so these expressions of myself and for myself, if you were ever to ask me, even when I was at my vainest young teenage girl, who's the most beautiful woman in the world, it's always people who captivate my heart. It's not people who are beautiful or interesting. I've always been obsessed. (laughs) This sounds so cliche and I'm almost grossed out to say it, but to me, I'm obsessed with mother Teresa just because she was a woman who had everything she needed and recognized need all around her and had to just force her way into giving. And Mm -hmm. it let me be very clear. I am a selfish, frivolous woman, but this expression of self calls me more deeply Mm. than I know how to handle. So it's going to be an interesting, and women in my life, women in my family, my lineage grow to be like a hundred. So I've got another 50 years. I'm good. (laughs) I can explore. It's funny. I feel like this this last season of your healing, outpouring. I feel like I was a bird whose wings were broken very young. And I feel like it took me a good 47 years to get better. Mm. Um, You know, I being on a journey with the Lord, I wasn't, you know, that started nine years ago, mm-hmm. um, surrendering to the Holy spirit, just to let myself feel becoming vulnerable 
you can't test me for the Enneagram before that and say, that's my identity forever. I've definitely evolved. And it's interesting. I've tested twice. I keep, I keep not believing that helper would be my number uh-huh. because I'm like, you're just too and selfish and too much of a jerk. But <laughs> I'm not a jerk, but I am, you know, it's like, obviously my life has been like, I haven't been working in nonprofits. I haven't, you know, I haven't, that wasn't the direction I went in. Right. Because equally, which is going to be an interesting expression of self, equally, do I need the beauty and the experience and the charisma of just what a day has to offer? That's the seven. Like they want it. You don't get to, it doesn't slide by. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) I don't like wasted days. Even if I'm at home, I I, are on the move and it's not even on the move. It's if I'm in a relationship, I want depth to my relationship. I keep very few personal relationships in my right. life because I want, I want depth to my relationships. You know, it's like if I, my family, I want a healthy, happy family. I right. want the experience. This iteration of this long life journey is now a very homebound, but my home is a beautiful sanctuary mm-hmm. and the experience of living in it is a delight. And it's very handcrafted by Brian and I, I mean, everything. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So, so where would you find yourself now? You feel like you, the two really two and seven, but to your point, number three, yeah. I'm raised by a three uh-huh. and he was my safest place in the world. So I kind of think I was brought up by an orthopedic surgeon who was very much a self-made man. Mm-hmm. And my philosophy on how to get where you're going is like, why not do your best? Mm-hmm. Look at, I, I just look at how my dad lived. I am not innately an achiever, but if I'm going to do something like, why not? Why, why not? Right. It, it doesn't call me. It's funny. The avatar of Bonnie, the photo shoot, Bonnie, she's almost an external piece that I use to build the school that I'm using to serve other people. Right. So it's funny. The achiever is almost like something I don't connect to her. I don't feel like her, but Mm. she is a very alluring story to draw people skills to set up the four walls of a getting of a new experience experience. yeah yeah so yeah so that's where i'm at at the enneagram it's been a cool learning experience you challenged me with the three you did (laughs) it was an interesting one yeah Yeah. i love it i love it because it it does i think when we do land at the the one that um really does i feel like kind of like encapsulate not put us in a box but it really gives us the language and the roadmap um within ourselves. Um, for me, it was very freeing and it was very much a, um, yeah, just some light bulbs went off, I think in how I operate and then understanding and being more compassionate for how other people operate. And that's the whole purpose, I think of this, um, structure of the Enneagram, right. Is to, to be more in tune with yourself, how you show up in the world, give yourself more compassion and grace. And then hopefully we can give that to other people. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. It's a journey still. But But. also like realizing, okay, yes, three, I'm not a three, but I see my dad all over it. Mm -hmm. Recognizing that other people's differences aren't differences. They're not something to be feared. They're gifts. Sure. They're expressing their gifts. Yeah. 
And even if I don't understand their gifts mm-hmm. or they don't seem of value in my life because they don't make my the heartstrings resonate in me to make music. We need they, all of the Yes, I like the Enneagram because it yeah. really outlines all of the possibilities of the human gifts. And I kind of relate to all of them. Like, you know what I mean? Listening to Stefan, I was like, Oh, I'm that one. Oh, I think I'm that one. Wait, I'm probably that one and that one. But (laughs) I also recognize there are a lot of people in the world that I just don't understand. Mm -hmm. And, and I like, I like the Enneagram because it gives a platform to say, well, I might not understand you, but that doesn't mean that it means that I don't understand your gifts. So, and, and, and it's more beautiful. of a platform and a, and an explanation as to like, wow, we're created incredibly different, right? Mm-hmm. Just the ways that we're built up here is, is, is can be incredibly diverse. And so sometimes I have a hard time understanding how other people are built. Yeah. And so learning more about that and hopefully caring more about it. <laughs> Which is like sometimes hard. So we are going to dig into our last topic. Oh, it's actually, my favorite. Okay. Of all of them, but okay. it is rest. Ah. And so it is what practices have we adopted? Um, play, rest, discovery, all the things that help us to step back, renew, restore, regenerate, so we can offer our best selves to the world. Yeah. Um, what does like a rest? look like in your in your kind of like cyclical seasons of life yeah that has changed a lot mm-hmm. as life has gone on yeah oh yeah um I saw a picture of you on a hammock this weekend oh that made me feel very restful <laughs> I was restful <laughs> yes that's one of my very most happy places. Oh yeah. I don't know. Why don't you tell me before I share with you, uh, we're in COVID season, so I know it's probably evolved for you. You don't want to share with me a rest for you. I can. Yeah. Share with me a rest for you. I bet everybody'd like to hear. I, you're Dana. I love, yeah. Resting is my favorite. (laughs) You're good at it. I am very good at it. And I hope to encourage other people to also dig in because there's so many benefits, right? And and yeah. even now during this time, like I'm not, I'm not working full time Yeah. and I really enjoy it. I'm really like, I'm working part time and I can really do a lot of things that I, that bring me joy. Yeah. And so, um, my regular rhythms are sometimes physically resting, like reading. I love to read. So for me, that's a joy being at the ocean. It yeah. feels very renewing to me. Um, you know, taking walks and connecting with humans. That is something that I need to like renew myself because obviously when I'm by myself too much, I get a little bit nutty and stir crazy. Um, so yeah, I think on the grander scheme, I also love to explore. Mm -hmm. So a day in a city around the world, wake up and there's no agenda. Yeah. And I can just set my own, you know, maybe there's like, a certain place I need to end up or something like that. But, um, yeah, I think wandering without any expectation and discovering also really just is like, that's my dream world to live in. It's very renewing. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Uh, So, so mom life, mom life, 
with a work life, it's, it's got, it's changed, Dana. It was, it used to be, um, you know, I have an incredibly supportive husband and a child who's really proud of my job when I was, I was doing photo shoots up until COVID started traveling heavy, heavily with Ralph Lauren, but I'd picked up old Navy and then some other, just a couple of freelance clients. Um, and I'll tell you, there was something that it wasn't deeply restful, but just getting away for three or four days Mm. and breaking up the routine of, you know, like all the home, um, you know, like a lot of running around, it would kind of, and I'd go to places like I'd, I'd stay on the beach or, you know, I'd be in the mountains. So you were going to kind of like beautiful locations for the most part. So I really, I think I relied on that to get away. Yeah. So I didn't, I don't feel that I really had any habits in place. Um, I really confronted a lot of anxiety in early, um, you know, kind of shelter in place season because I was so unaccustomed to being home Uh and having a home life. Um, but I like, I'm a pretty quick fix as far as getting back to healthy. Um, I really, really doubled down. I run every day for 30 minutes. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's no. release. And let me not give anyone any illusions. My running does not look like the running that you see on the pictures of running magazines. There is no gazelle in me. I sort of <laughs> trundle around my neighborhood in some very sweaty running clothes. Um, but I do it. I do it in any heat. I do it in the rain. I, I, I love motion and I've taken it a little deeper. I've found these, um, I found binaural beats. <laughs> what? Binaural beats. It's, it's so new age. It's so awful. I subscribe to a station on YouTube called brainwave music. Okay. And it's just basically like meditation music. That's, I guess it's beta waves or theta waves. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's just sound. Yeah. That. Is in sync with your brain and your body. It's meant to release dopamine or release serotonin or like just kind of open up your feelings of possibility or release old information. It's very new age. But for me, um, I wanted to turn my run into a meditation rather than an opportunity to listen to more news. (laughs) So so I did it once and had such a radically different day Mm -hmm. that it's really become my jam. Like if you see me running, there's something in my ear AirPods going like, (laughs) and maybe a little piano sound. I mean, it is weird sounding music, but, but it centers me. It's interesting. It's like all of a sudden I look at the street in a way I haven't seen it ever before. And I am fully present in the day. Like Mm. it's, so I do running meditation. That's very restful for me. My work is restful. Sewing is, sewing is a flow state activity. Mm. So when I sew, um, you know, I find a lot of sanctuary in my work. And right now, because I'm developing common sewing, I'm doing my lessons again and again and again and again to test them and make sure that my instruction steps are clear. So I'm doing a lot of sewing. So I'm finding a lot of peace in that. Um, I read a book called the power of habit. Mm -hmm. And so I'm putting habits in my life that I've never had before. 
it's not Stephen Covey, right? No, that's no. the, that's the, I've read, I know what, which one you're talking about. Okay. Um, maybe it's not the power of habit. I can see the book on my table. Cause I read a little bit of it every day, but I will text you the name of the book and you can put it in the show notes. Okay. <laughs> but, um, God, I'm so bad at that. But, uh, what I'm finding is I'm finding a lot of peace in putting in place small routines mm-hmm. that I do every single day. Mm-hmm. And for me, I listen to all these like Tim Ferriss podcasts and ritual podcasts and all these like male high achievers are talking about what they do in the first half of their day is tend to their body. But for me as a mom and a wife, tending to my body means, you know, like tending to the body of my family and my home. Like I really love the values of being a housewife. I, I love it. Mm -hmm. So for me, my habits in the morning that I get out of the way before I start deep diving into my work are, you know, like making sure the food is in place for dinner at night. So there's peace around that. Mm -hmm. Um, making sure that our home is clean and uplifting and refreshing so Mm. that I put in place the peace around that. It's all of these places of peace require intention and action. So for me, it's the whole of my life is becoming more peaceful Mm -hmm. with these daily intentions. It's almost like the yoga of vacuuming, the yoga of emptying the dishwasher, you know, it's just like, Mm. and then, um, Every morning and every night, my son, his love language is definitely snuggling. Um, Every night, he and I lay down after dinner before real bedtime and watch one episode of The Office. We've been through it nine times, Dana. Oh, wow. We've seen all of them. Wow. And we start again with the same zeal and gusto every time. He's got a very quirky sense of humor. And then we have to have, as a family, every night... Right. Five minutes of snuggling. Mm-hmm. And then Brian reads a story. Like the whole family's in the bed. Okay. He's got a big bed. And then I do the prayer. And then we snuggle until he falls asleep. And so just like yet. And then in the morning, we do something very similar with a prayer and a snuggle and a wake up. Please don't tell Nicholas I told you that. He's 11 and he'd be horrified <laughs> and he'd kill me. But if you're talking about rest in my life, I struggle with anxiety heavily. Mm-hmm. So me building in practices that either encourage rest in my actions or, you know, that literally stop me and like encourage love and just good, the good feelings. Right. Those are my rest places. Beautiful. Thanks. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Being a part of this. Um, So real quickly. Okay. um, Not too much explanation. Two very small things. Okay. One is, um, do you have like an MO or a mantra that you live by? Okay. So the thing I think I say to myself more than anything, um, is stop, drop, and pray. Mm. It just, it's, it's not even, my mantra isn't even for me. It's that so much of my life I have no power over and so much of the good stuff in my life I didn't create. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So pretty much throughout my day, yeah, just like That's drop where, it all. Where you go to. Yeah. yeah. Quick prayer, you know. That's so good. Yeah. Second thing is, can you tell us the story behind this shirt? <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll be finished for real. <laughs> 
so you can't see me. And I had to, I did explain to you that I was not just coming here after gardening and not caring about this. I did wear for our interview. This is my teaching shirt. It's a blue and white striped shirt. I think I've had it for 10 years. It does have paint on it. Um, But when I teach, I have to be on video. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I really like the way that I look in this ratty old button down, you know, secondhand striped royal blue and white striped shirt. Um, Yeah. And the cutoff Levi's because... Because cut off Levi's. Because cut off Levi's. <laughs> they need no explanation. Yeah. <laughs> um, beautiful. So you had mentioned it briefly earlier, but if we okay. found you online, you, it would be um, commonthreadsewing.com. Nope. Commonsewing.com. Dot commonsewing. Yep. Dot com. Okay. Commonsewing.com. And then does that kind of cross most platforms like mm-hmm. Facebook and Instagram and all those things. Okay. Instagram, common sewing, Facebook, common sewing and, um, common sewing.com has my blog where I tell stories. There will be more and more and more and more. (laughs) And we will soon. It's got the contact page where if you need to talk to me about something, you can reach me through the contact page. And then I've got the workshops are going to be, the launch will be listed there. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Bonnie. I'm honored. Thank you. And thanks for your stories and your life and being who you are. Well, thank you for all you bring to Orlando. Thanks for bringing us together in ways that are uh, totally uncharted and very, very, very real and genuine and intimate. And thanks for having me on this podcast. When you asked me, it kind of blew my mind (laughs) and I've been really excited. Good. Yeah. Until next time. Mm. Thank you a million times over for listening to Cocktails and Conversation podcast. I hope you have enjoyed all of it. If you have, would you do me a huge favor and rate, comment, and subscribe for more Cocktails and Conversations. 